This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. First, cancer endangered Michael Fallon's life, and then it threatened to take his voice from him. As a poet and teacher, how could he go on without a voice? He learns that to survive and recover from cancer, you must find that place in yourself which is the source of inspiration and strength, that deep river of being that even now flows through you. This is the uplifting story of how he found the lost river and got his voice back with the help of memory, imagination, and a sip of Garnasha wine. Michael Fallon is a senior lecturer emeritus in the English Department at the University of Maryland. He is the author of four collections of poetry, and his essays and poems have appeared in numerous literary journals and magazines. His innermost ear is always turned to what the Irish call the music of what happens. Finding the Lost River Written by Michael Fallon, read by Tom Zingarelli. A memory of the eyes in blue masked faces looking down into you. Then a large room with other bodies draped in white, some of them asleep, still as death. Others struggle like newborns to sit up. A few sit upright and peruse themselves. The mind, as if slowly thawing from a deep freeze, asks dimly, Am I all here? Where are the bandages, the scars? Am I whole, or am I broken? A hand softly grasps your arm, and a pair of eyes looks into yours. Lie down, they say. You might hurt yourself. Now you see the woman in pale blue scrubs. Pretty brown eyes. She tells you to wait and relax until the anesthesia wears off a bit more. You try to swallow. Does it feel any different? I can't tell. Soon you are wheeled through white corridors, past people in maroon, sky-blue or dark-blue scrubs, who dodge or slip into door jams as the gurney snakes its way to a gray-curtained room where you wait for the surgeon. When he slips under the curtain, you can tell immediately by his sad-eyed face that it did not go well. We couldn't find an opening, he says, standing there in his light-blue scrubs, mask dangling beneath his chin. The scar tissue is fused to the back of your throat. There is nowhere to slide in the balloon to do the expansion. When my wife comes in, it's clear she has been crying. The three of us look at each other. All we can see is gloom. After the surgeon leaves, Dorothy, the social worker, comes in. We'll see, she says. Maybe there's another way. Yesterday, on the 23rd of December... After an operation to expand my throat to allow me to speak and to swallow, 
so I might at last eat normally without the feeding tube that was inserted directly into my stomach, I discovered that my esophagus was blocked by scar tissue caused by the radiation treatments from my throat cancer. My throat was literally sealed off, and I will need another more extensive and intrusive operation to open it up. This second operation will clear the scar tissue from my esophagus, but it also means removing my vocal cords and losing my natural speaking voice. Though I was declared free of cancer in November, I still writhe in its shadow, and I will not be beyond it until I recover completely. What is the right word for my experience of this disease? Affliction? Ordeal? Trial? Adventure? Transformation? Cancer is an affliction in that it casts a shadow over my life, and for a time I lay in troubled darkness. The cure was an ordeal as my body was methodically poisoned and burned. When you face death, you cannot help but put your own life on trial, and so I have struggled with guilt and innocence, what I have done and left undone in my life. But my illness was also a trial in that the jury was out, and no one knew, as I lay awake in this sweating dark, if or when it would return, or what the final verdict might be. It was an adventure, in that I passed through danger and was swept away by a storm, transformed and returned, still clinging to a body and a self, with some pieces missing. One of those missing pieces will now be my voice, and I cannot help but feel that an incandescent ember of myself will go with it. It had faded and finally drowned back in August under the relentless choking onslaught of phlegm from my damaged throat. I have not been able to hold a real conversation with anyone since. It is now the end of December, and as far as I know, I will never hear the true sound of my voice again. It will be gone forever when they remove my voice box. How simple and harmless it sounds to remove a box. Of course, I will learn to speak again using a stoma, a hole in the throat just above the Adam's apple, which will allow the flow of air for speech. For several months I have been trapped inside myself, unable to articulate my suffering other than barely intelligible croaks and howls of anger or pain. I have learned to use hand gestures whenever possible and to keep my conversation to only the necessary in the most abbreviated form, a lot of yeses and noes with no elaboration. I use a writing pad, often writing out what I need in advance for each day. At the hospital, people address my wife rather than me when they realize that I cannot speak. It is as if I have suddenly become deaf or incompetent as well as dumb. All this makes it even more agonizing when I imagine that my natural voice will never return. What does it mean to recover from an illness? What does it mean if you don't recover? If you do recover, does it mean that you get your life back as it was before? Or do you reckon your losses and learn to live with them? Are those who don't recover diminished in health, vitality, or spirit, in a slow descent toward the darkness at the bottom of the stairs, down into what the poet Dylan Thomas called the great good night? But how and when do you know or decide that you are recovered? Is it when, at last, you clearly see just how much of yourself you have salvaged and just what it is you have lost when you complete the final ledger? Recovery from head and neck cancer is a complex physical process involving interconnected bodily functions like breathing, eating, drinking, and speaking. 
Yet it is not merely physical, it is also mental and spiritual. Not only my physical being, but my life has been threatened. In the broadest sense, my livelihood, my way of life, my very identity is under siege. Any life-threatening illness is also a crisis of the spirit, as one struggles to understand and hold on to what matters. I stand in the large, darkened lecture hall, full to the brim with a mostly young, college-aged audience. I am at the podium, looking out at the blur of faces. I am about to begin speaking, when nothing, nothing, not even an ugly croak comes out of my open mouth. I must look like a drowning fish, my mouth working as if I had no tongue. I look down at the podium and there isn't a shred of paper there. I have no idea where I am or what I'm supposed to do. As the audience looks up at me expectantly, a titter of laughter ripples across the room, and I'm frozen there in that moment, until my eyes open and I see again the bedroom ceiling. I freely admit that as a poet and teacher I have loved the sound of my own voice, to fill whole rooms and halls with it, to hear it echo off walls, to see the faces lifted toward me or the lowered chins eyes shaded in thought. I loved it most when nothing moved, and even the silence was listening, that silence at the threshold that every rhyme, every phrase, every sentence so longs to cross from the now into memory. What, after all, is a voice? It is thought converted into breath, a vibration of rising air from the lungs, driven through trembling cords of strung flesh, shaped by the sliding tongue, the teeth, the roof of the mouth, the pursing and parting of the lips. To breathe in and pass on the restless wind that moves you to speak is beauty and power, but it helps an audience to keep listening if you can make a lovely sound, if you have a pleasing timbre, pitch, and tone, and use your instrument well. So I used mine as best I could. As we struggle, body and mind, to recover from serious illness, we don't usually think of the beautiful and the sublime as necessities. But would you want to live in a world without them? Somehow they are connected to happiness and to hope, but how can we get them back once they are gone? We need to believe in the possibility that something inspiring Something wonderful and sublime still shines out ahead of us, that our days will come again into the light of beauty and possibility. But what exactly are the sublime and the beautiful, and what is the difference between them? I think of the writings of Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant. Burke was an 18th-century British writer and philosopher. He wrote a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas on the sublime and the beautiful. Kant was a 19th-century German philosopher who further refined some of Burke's ideas in Critique of the Power of Judgment and other writings. According to Burke and Kant, 
The experience of the sublime is a combination of terror and ecstasy. There is an element of conflict in it, as reason, thrown off balance, overcomes what has overwhelmed the imagination and is restored. It is something one might feel after an arduous, risky climb, maybe even nearly falling, seeing death in the yawning emptiness below, but then finally reaching the highest ridge on the mountain and looking 360 degrees into the surrounding vastness of the sky, valley upon valley, rivers and mountains without end. One has looked into the abyss and seen his own death, and now stands on the summit having overcome it. The ecstasy at the top of a mountain is enhanced by the perilous steepness and the danger of the climb. The beautiful, on the other hand, is an experience that is harmonious. One does not feel so much in conflict with nature, but one's essential unity with it. There might be a sense of calm, peace, and great joy, as one might feel lying on a blanket looking up into the Milky Way on an exceptionally dark and clear night. Time and place are lost in the boundless, deep, silent river of stars. As I lie awake and alone in the middle of the night, I often think back through my past in search of the most sublime experiences that I can remember. I have been to many spectacular places and encountered more than my fair share of danger on the steep ridges of the Colorado Rockies and in the Oregon, the Magdalena, and the Roblados Mountains of New Mexico. I vividly remember the cliff, the steep drop of the Roblados, hugging the vertical rock face of the dry waterfall, my feet splayed on a narrow ledge as I inched my way across, clinging to a lip of rock barely as wide as the tips of my fingers. A hundred feet below, the stone teeth of the mountain waited to crush my bones. I was the first one to make it over and stand in breathless exhilaration, alive in that high, thin air, the wide horizon, that expanse of desert and sky, waiting for my three companions to test the balance of fate. While my memory of these places and experiences was still sharp, my imagination returned again and again not to the high mountains, pinnacles, and deep gorges, not to the formidable sublime, but to serene beauty and peace, the music of a river sliding over stone. I did not want conflict. I wanted connection. My mind constantly sought out a combination of memory and daydream until I made it into a kind of composite narrative. I hear the static of the rapids long before I see the shattered sunlight or the underglimmer on the leaves. At the bottom of the ravine, the river has cut a channel in the rock, foaming over the gray and white stones, pale green where it is dammed, deep jade where it bends against the shore. We go upstream on the narrow trail above the river. Twenty feet below, it is shallow as it flows clear over the rusted gold of a million rounded pebbles. Finally, we come to a little beach where the water deepens around smooth, dolphin-colored boulders a few yards out in midstream. We sink our feet in the cold water, cold enough that our feet go numb and wade out to the boulders and sit midstream, feeling the smooth weight of the current against our thighs. I hear the mocking of a mockingbird, the caw of a crow, a distant thrush, 
and maybe a chickadee. An invisible cloud of songs and cries merges with the sound of the running rapids and the restless breeze in the tallest poplars. All the world, with its hospitals, houses, and roads, its parking lots, tedious business, violence, its must-do and be, has passed beyond the wall of leaves. Here we do not speak, but gesture with an upraised finger and a look aloft as a hawk's shadow glides in place out over the flowing creek, then veers upstream. No one can ever enter this space except for the occasional trout fisherman, as ancient, silent, and slow-moving as the poplars, and as invisible to us as we are to them. Oh, what really matters? Nothing? Every precious thing? You wonder, overwhelmed and becalmed by the miracles of light, water, and air? What am I doing with my life? Why has it taken me so long to get back here again, so that I feel happy and alive? When simply being here at all is a great goodness, why so much pain and suffering? When there is such peace, flowing, generous, shining, a white butterfly landing briefly in your hair, then zagging on downstream. We know how to get here and to be here. We can find our way back to where the warm sun shimmers around a slight bend and the current slides away from us, flowing like rippling glass over the gray and brown stones, where the stream widens and shallows and light hovers over the water. We sit here enveloped by the static roar of flowing water, the river a white gold flickering before our half-closed eyes as time pools and shallows, slows and spins over the depth, shines, sparkles, and burns around us, the light and the river repeating themselves almost, but never quite, despite the whirlpools, the seasons, the orbits, time spiraling away with all those suns in it, like flowing smoke with sparks thrown off in the wind, the day like a windy tree on fire in the dark fold of a valley. It is the same flow, but not the same water, not the same mountains, hills, stones, sand, not the same hand numbing itself in the current. Oh, you know, it is not the river that is moving, but your mind, your mind flowing and glistening in the one long thought that is gliding forever by. What is it that we seek in the journey of our lives? Some would say happiness, but what is happiness? The word comes down to us from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and is the union of hap with ness, as in happening or happenstance. Happiness is nothing more than good fortune, luck, the opposite of mishap. So how do we find it? We don't. It happens or it doesn't. To search for good fortune or happiness seems futile. It is not out there like a precious stone to be found. Besides, we have only one vague word for so many states of mind. When we are happy, do we mean content? Feeling good about ourselves? Feeling proud of accomplishments? That we feel love, a sense of meaning, peace? Just what do we mean? What holds up in the face of death? What does one need to experience the sublime or the powerfully beautiful? A river helps, along with some silence, 
solitude, and maybe a lover or close friend, you might assemble and shuffle, add and subtract these ingredients time after time, and never get back there. There is no exact formula. But sometimes the way forward is to go back, to recover what has inspired us in the past, in the hope it will help us find a way into the future. The beautiful and the sublime do not exist outside of ourselves, but in the unity of what is out there in nature, with what is in the human spirit. In this forever-changing universe, everything contains an infinitesimal grain of the infinite. The poet Robert Bly has said that there are two kinds of poetry, the poetry of discovery and the poetry of recovery. This idea could be applied to meaning as well. Finding meaning is a matter of recovery, covering what was lost, or of discovery finding something new, a touchstone place in yourself where you can return if need be, so that you can go forward into your life with courage. I had not tasted much of anything for months and was determined to have at least a splash of wine on New Year's Eve, even if it would not go down and I would simply have to spit it out. So when midnight came, I poured myself a glass of Garnasha wine and swirled it around in my mouth. It tasted strongly of alcohol and bitterness, but eventually a little fruitiness came through under my tongue. I tried to swallow some of it, it stung my throat as I began to cough, but I also had the unmistakably wet feeling of something liquid sliding all the way down my throat. When I saw that my feeding tube was stained with red, I knew for sure the wine had gone into my stomach. This was proof that I did, in fact, have a tiny opening in my throat that might be used to do an expansion. There was a chance that my voice could be saved. When I called our surgeon, he was as excited as my wife and I were, and he ordered a swallow test for later in the week. A pencil-thin line showed up on the pale TV screen, like the sketch of a faint waterfall slanting down the X-ray of my throat under the shadow of my skull and next to my neck bones. This lucky little filament, this slender gray scratch, is what saved my voice. This and a sip of garnacha. In order to recover, one must understand what recovery means. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it means, among other things, to recover from misfortune, trouble, illness, error, etc., to restore to health, strength, or consciousness, or to regain by legal means. But one thing for certain that recovery from cancer means is acknowledging and understanding what you've lost. I have lost about 75 pounds a year of teaching, eating, and drinking, and going about my life oblivious to my own good health and freedom. My throat is still swollen, and I still cannot swallow all that efficiently. I go on coughing jags frequently. I aspirate fragments or drops of what I eat and drink, bits of which set off another cascade of coughing and could potentially cause a bout of pneumonia. I cough up phlegm, which gives my voice a croaking, gravelly sound. My neck must be massaged every day to dislodge the waste from my lymph system. I get tired in the mid-afternoon and often need a nap, and I often sleep late into the morning. I still cannot taste all of my food, and much of it doesn't taste as good as it did before. I find my life a bit repetitive and boring, 
and I tire of all the endless cycles of exercises I must do every day. I may yet need more throat expansions because I have permanent scars in my throat from the radiation, which may cause swallowing or breathing problems in the future. After my treatment and the loss of about one-fifth of my weight, my head seems smaller and differently shaped. Though my wife tells me I look younger and more handsome, I look weird to myself. Many of my old friends do not even recognize me. I don't mind being thinner, except that all my life I've been a strong man who looks strong. For the first time I look and feel weak, unable to lift or carry things, bags of mulch, groceries, and air conditioners, which I had done without too much thought before. But I can number myself among the living, and a harsher version of my voice has survived. My face has come back into sharper focus, as if for much of my life it had been a blurred photograph. I can see my father's features, as well as my own child face within me, as if they had merged into one, and I have become more purely myself. I have stared down my own death and begun to repair myself from the physical, emotional, and spiritual ravages of cancer. Yet all the time I am healing, my body is also aging, so there is never a point where I will draw even to where I would have been before without the cancer. I must carry the scars with me, hoping I've learned from them. They are part of the burden of experience, so do I expect a complete and final recovery where my life will be made whole again and just like it was? Not at all. I understand very well that my life, past, present, and future, has been irrevocably changed, and that recovery can stretch for years into the future. It is seven o'clock on a Tuesday evening, and about twenty of us sit in a hospital conference room. By the door, on the way in, are coffee, hot water for tea, soft drinks, and various kinds of cookies. When we are ready to convene, Dorothy, the social worker, and Karen, the head nurse for our head and neck cancer recovery group, have us all introduce ourselves. There are three or four couples, and the rest are mostly men in their sixties and seventies, most married, one or two not. Everyone introduces him or herself and tells their story, usually with great frankness and humor. Dorothy, Karen, and the participants ask questions to draw out salient points and to help answer the questions of the newbies, those who are still in treatment or those who are new to recovery. Questions like, When will I be able to get rid of this damned feeding tube? Will my sense of taste return? What about my voice? When will the choking phlegm subside? When will I be able to eat again? Does one ever really recover? What are the odds I will get cancer again? Does the fear ever go away? Some of the veterans are missing part of the jaw or face. One man in his seventies who has come with his wife tells us that his jaw was replaced by a bone graft from his fibula. We all look at him, amazed. What a miracle! It doesn't show in the least. The generosity and quiet bravery of the veterans says volumes. 
They are here to support those whose bodies and minds have not yet absorbed the full shock of their radiation and chemotherapy. Among the grateful are the two Georges in our group. There is old George, a tall, bald, thin man in his seventies with a long gray beard, who has battled three cancer recurrences and speaks with great knowledge and patient, wise authority. And there is George the saxophonist, a muscular guy with a goatee in his early fifties. There is also Don, who plays the double bass as well as violin, ukulele, and guitar. He is a skinny, white-haired, white guy in his sixties, now performing again. He recounts with humor his struggles with the feeding tube and learning to eat normally. Carl, a stocky, well-dressed black man in his forties, with a full afro, speaks with absolute confidence through a stoma, though many do not even notice, and tells us he has even learned to sing again. He also tells us that all his hair fell out during cancer treatment, but it now has grown back so fast and thickly that he has trouble keeping it trimmed, hence the huge afro. Carl was a great source of inspiration and courage for me when I thought I was going to need a stoma myself and was concerned about how I would function as a poet and teacher. Karen, our head nurse, also speaks with the aid of a stoma, but with such great naturalness and effectiveness that I nearly forgot to mention it at all. Later at our June meeting, George, the saxophonist, notes that we rarely talk about negative emotion, and he goes on to describe the intense anger he felt when he realized he had cancer. I could thoroughly identify with that feeling, and like saxophonist George, it took me a while to learn to cope with my anger and to understand that what felt like rage was actually fear, so intense and omnipresent that I could not deal with it, and so it came out as anger. And then there is Susan, one of the three or four female survivors in our group. Susan has a very pleasant voice, is blonde, young-looking, and in her late thirties or early forties. Tonight she talks extensively about her fear of falling asleep, and goes on to describe how it usually takes up to four hours for her to, at last, get to sleep at night. I'm afraid I will never wake up, she says. She goes on to say that she doesn't quite understand the reasons for her fear. In response, Dorothy says, Now that you have been struck by lightning, you know that it can happen again. The cancer might come back. Then old George talks about what he calls piling on and explains that he is now experiencing several serious health problems at once, a stroke, heart issues, and trouble with his kidneys. He says that the piling effect of one issue after another has made him depressed, though he never shows it. Susan explains that in addition to recovering from cancer, she has recently had other health issues as well. She says, I think it's the piling on that has made me afraid of the cancer again. We all nod slowly. This makes good sense. But Dorothy advises, you may understand your fear or not understand your fear, but you could feel the anxiety anyway. The problem is the anxiety itself, not its cause. You need to find ways to relax and relieve the stress. We are all extremely thankful for Dorothy's compassion and skill and Karen's knowledge and practical advice on how to deal with physical issues like taking care of our teeth and how much and what kinds of exercise are practical at each stage of the cure. These two women are the cement that holds our group together and keeps people coming back month after month for years after their treatment has been over, some for as many as 15 years.
My wife, Ruth, and I have noticed that the sour patients and the big complainers usually do not return. They are often bitter guys with unhappy, uncomfortable wives who suffer because their husbands have made them feel that they have not been good caregivers. We all glance at each other and silently sympathize with the wives who must deal with these petty tyrants. After the meetings, many have tried to help these couples with advice and sympathy, but some patients will not be helped. Some of the older survivors who had their surgeries more than 10 to 15 years ago are much more physically damaged than those of us who have been through therapy in the last five years. It is a consensus that the recent survivors are in better shape because the hospitals have made progress in cancer research and now use radiation and chemotherapy much more accurately and sparingly. Some in our group seem to be fully recovered. They have adapted to whatever limitations their cancer has left them with, such as issues with swallowing, a diminished sense of taste and appetite, huge weight loss, and constant fatigue. But they are very calm and positive and go out of their way to engage with those who are new to this struggle. Once you can let go of all the fear, sorrow, pain, and loss, and begin to look in the other direction, you are past the midpoint of recovery. You are finally recovered when you begin to think not just of the disease, but of recovery itself as in your past, when your eyes and attention are again focused, instead of on your disease or sick body, outward again, towards others and the future. Somehow there must always be a sense of freedom and possibility in our lives, in spite of, because of, the fact that health and life must come to an end. We must touch some deep place, the bottom of sorrow, and make at least a temporary peace with death, so that being alive becomes a blessing and a wonder again. This is why we seek the inspiring nature of the sublime and the powerfully beautiful, though they take a slightly different emotional route to the sacred. In the life and death drama that is everyone's story, the only real cure for the wound of suffering is to again recognize the power of love and imagination, to recover and rediscover the sublime and the beautiful, inhabit them, carry them with you for as long as you can, and you may yet, somewhere out ahead of you, Hear the gliding water, see that glimmering among the trees. It is time now to prepare to re-enter my life as a poet and teacher. The recurring anxiety dreams have already begun. Like a lone mariner, I stand at the bow of a ship with the invisible night and the waves out in front of me. Or is it a cavernous lecture hall, or a stage with the footlights turned up bright? I know a large audience is out there. I can hear the rustling and the quiet laughter of young people, but I see only the lit-up blackness. I do not have a book or a single page of notes to guide me, but only memory and an intuitive sense of direction. I do not know what class this is, or if it is a class, or exactly why I am here. Nonetheless, I must begin. Maybe it will be with an honest question. I am a bit puzzled. Tell me, what are we all doing here? And we shall find our way. This story was first published by Blood and Thunder, Fall 2020. It is copyright 2019 by Michael Fallon. 
This recording is copyright 2020, Rivercliff Books and Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.